0: This is New Books in Middle Eastern Studies. I'm Donna Shamada. My guest, Marcia Inhorn, a medical anthropologist and William K. Landman Junior, Professor of Anthropology and International Affairs at Yale University, is a specialist in Middle Eastern gender and health issues. In her new book, The Arab Man, Emergent Masculinities, Technologies, and Islam in the Middle East, she draws on two decades of ethnographic research across the Middle East with hundreds of men to show how the new Arab man is self-consciously rethinking the patriarchal masculinity of his forefathers. The book won the Journal of Middle Eastern Women's Studies award at the Middle Race Studies Association in 2014, and she was named Middle East Distinguished Scholar by the Middle East Section of the American Anthropological Association in 2013. Marsha Inhorn, welcome to New Books in Middle Race Studies. It's wonderful to have you
1: here. Thank you, Binafsh. I'm really pleased to be speaking with you. I
0: wonder if you could say a few words um, about yourself, where you were born, raised, where you went
1: to school, where you became interested in medical anthropology and Middle East in general. Yes, I'm from the Midwest. I grew up in Madison, Wisconsin, and I went there as an undergraduate to University of Wisconsin-Madison, where I was a double major in journalism and anthropology, two fields that actually overlap very well with each other, because they're both interested in stories and sort of human interest stories. And uh, then after working as a medical journalist for a few years, I decided to go back to graduate school in the sort of growing subfield of medical anthropology. And I was part of the graduate program in medical anthropology at the University of California, Berkeley, University of California, San Francisco. And it was there that I really made the decision to work in the Arab world, to work in the Middle East. Um, I was invited in my, uh, first year of graduate school, or actually my second year of graduate school, uh, to be part of a project in rural Egypt looking at a blinding eye disease. Um, And I participated as a medical anthropologist, anthropologist in that project and realized that one of the sort of profound forms of human suffering in Egypt Um, was when couples could not have children. Um, People are very child-oriented in the Arab world. And so I realized that infertility or the inability to have children was really something um, of importance to women, to men. And that's really how I started on this path towards an understanding of Middle East gender relationships between men and women, um, was way back in the late 1980s working on the problem of infertility in the Middle East. So when you say
0: that uh, people in the Arab world are, are focused on children, what, what do you mean?
1: Yeah, I would say in general, um, the Muslim Middle East um, is pronatalist. natalist um, People want to have children. There are both religious and cultural reasons for having children. And beyond that, people just within marriage really want to have children. I have to say that it's a very child centric part of the world. Um, In every Arab country in which I've lived or, you know, people really um, are kind to children. They, they, they love children. They loved my children and um, basically see children as a very important part of family life, a very important part of marriage. Um, People, think that children are just the decorations of earthly life uh so there's a very strong within marriage very strong desire to have children um i'm, I'm also wondering if you had uh,
0: any women mentors um while you were an undergrad or a grad student or as a junior faculty member
1: yeah very interestingly since i focus on women and children I had two fantastic women mentors, neither of whom had children, Um, sort of early female academics who um, their life courses did not involve having children, but nonetheless, they were incredibly supportive women mentors to me. I had one as an undergraduate. She was an anthropology professor, Um, and I had, again, a medical anthropology professor in graduate school who was kind of like our academic mother really was a a great woman role model, both of them. Um, Yeah, And so that was really important to me. I've had wonderful male mentors, too. My dissertation advisor was a man, and um, I've had incredible support from male academics in my life. But I did have two very powerful female mentors who showed me that you could be an anthropologist. It's not a, it's a a rather, you know, an occupation that takes you far away and these women had done it and they were an inspiration to me i I would say so
0: reading your book i i have to say i it was a real pleasure for me i um didn't feel like it was work as i as i read it i felt like you were holding my hand and sort of showing me these little nooks and crannies um being from the Middle East, from Iran myself, I I really didn't know much about this field at all, and uh, it's just completely fascinating, especially getting into the lives of men. And um, uh, what I really loved about it—I mean, I loved many things about it—but what really sort of caught my attention was how well you told stories, and, and it wasn't just the first parts of every chapter that this, you know—you would introduce uh, one of or uh, uh, one of the men that you were interviewing, but sort of you kept going back to, to um, the lives and, and telling the sort of stories of these men over and over again even when you were talking about, uh, theoretically And um, so I guess my question is um, what do you find powerful about um, storytelling and especially telling the stories of ordinary men which is what you um, you, you you suggest in, in, um, in the very beginning of the book. You say you want to challenge our stereotypical understanding of the Arab man by
1: telling the stories of ordinary men. What so powerful about these stories? Yeah, well, well, thank you for all those nice things that you've said about the book. Um, I have to say my love of storytelling going back to my childhood, it, it comes from my mother. My mother is a great She's a great storyteller. And I think that also when I went to journalism school, which was my first training, um, you know, the power of stories of, you know, understanding something about people's lives is really part of good journalism, the human interest story. And I've always been attracted to stories. I love hearing people's stories. I love listening to people's stories and really anthropology as a discipline and anthropology as craft, what we do is really to listen to people's, you know, what they have to tell you about their lives, to observe their lives as well, but to listen to the stories that they have to tell. And I think that's really what I enjoy most about being an anthropologist. Um, our basic method is one called ethnography, where we go to a place, usually not a place that with which we are, you know, necessarily comfortable or familiar, and we engage people in conversation and we hear their stories. And there's a lot of interviewing that goes on as an anthropologist. So I over the years, I mean I started working in the you know Arab world back in the mid nineteen eighties. It's been really a 30-year engagement with the Arab world. Um, And I started really working mostly with women, as you know, um, really spending hundreds, thousands of hours listening to women tell me their stories about their lives. And I I realized then that I was missing, and that, in fact, scholarship was missing, um, sort of the opportunity to listen to ordinary men's lives. Um, And it eventually occurred to me, no one's really listening to men tell their stories Or if they are, it's often political stories. It's about the things that we sort of expect, that Arab men are interested in war, violence, competition, those kinds of stories. But we're not really hearing intimate stories about Arab men's lives. And that would include in the scholarship on the Middle East. There has been so much work done in scholarship on the Middle East about gender women, that gender means women in the Middle East. We have hundreds of books now that explore various aspects of the lives of ordinary women. And there was virtually nothing in the literature on ordinary Arab men. And so I eventually felt really compelled to start telling some of their stories.
0: Uh, was it a moment that you made this decision? Was it a particular conversation you had or what what exactly what you know what 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 where did the switch happen from
1: studying women in the Middle East to
0: studying men?
1: So my topic the lens through which I've always intervened or come to know people has been looking at infertility, you know, couples who couldn't have children in various Arab countries and, and their, their struggles and their quest to overcome their infertility and the kind of medical things that they did. So that is the sort of topic. But because of that, I ended up talking to all of these women who were, you know, suffering from this problem. And they would Initially, in my early days working in Egypt, uh, they would tell me a lot about their husbands and things that I didn't really expect that their husbands would be very loving toward them and very caring and going along with them. And I, you know, it wasn't the impression of Egyptian husbands that one might expect if you just, you know, kind of went along with the stereotypes that, oh, men won't, they'll, they'll divorce an infertile wife, they'll be abusive, they'll, you know, be terrible to her. This was, this was not what I was hearing. So I first learned about men really through the eyes of women, women telling me about their husbands. And I met some of those husbands, very nice, kind men. Then, you know, going back, I went back to Egypt to study the introduction of in vitro fertilization or test tube baby making in the Arab world and I intended really through my research project, really only again to speak with women about their experiences with in vitro fertilization. But their husbands were in the rooms with them, the, the husbands wanted to be part of the conversation. They wanted to talk about their own infertility problems. They wanted to talk about how much they treasured their lives. And I really felt like I, I can't kick them out. You know, they want to sit and talk with me too. So it was really my first experience of talking with men and women together as married couples. And then what I realized in Egypt in the late 1990s is that many of the so-called infertility problems were really male infertility problems, that there are actually very high rates of male infertility across the Middle Eastern region, and that we really, somebody needed to study the reproductive health problems of men. And I thought, I'm not the one to do this. I'm a woman. I'm an American woman. It should be a male anthropologist who should study the lives of men, their sort of intimate reproductive and sexual lives. And I tried to actually interest a young American male graduate student to go off and do this as a research project, and that didn't work out. But one of my Moroccan colleagues, a man, said, no, I think you should do a study of men, men's lives and reproductive lives. They may feel more comfortable talking with you as a woman from outside than they might talking with another man, especially a man from within the region. It can be very sensitive. It can be very competitive. You're probably in a better situation to do that. So, so I thought, well, why not? Let me see. I wrote a proposal to go study men and reproductive health in the Middle East. and um, I actually was prevented by the Egyptian authorities from coming back to Egypt to do that study. So I shifted to another Arab country. I shifted to Lebanon, where I was welcomed, and that began my sort of foray into the topic of male infertility, men and reproductive health, men's lives. It was really um, work in Lebanon that I did in the early 2000s that made me really talk alone with men for the first time so in the book you say that this
0: um is a this book is an act of contrition um that your frankly apologetic attempt to render visible the lives of middle eastern men whom you once regarded as imponderable and forbidden as a subject um can you elaborate on
1: that a little bit yeah um there's a very unfortunate reality in scholarship in gender scholarship Um, in the Middle Eastern region, and, and in anthropology as well, there is an assumption operating that women scholars have to work with women subjects and male scholars have to work with male subjects. And I don't know if that's true in other parts of the world, but in the Middle Eastern region, it's just believed that we conduct separate spheres research, that women work with women, men work with men. And it's sort of always been that way. And that somehow a woman researcher really would not be able to talk really openly with men. And similarly, that a male couldn't do that with women. And it sort of been an untested assumption, bizarrely an untested assumption, that women can't speak with men, men can't speak with women. And it was really this research that I did in Egypt where men wanted to talk with me. Their wives were present but the couple interviews were really rich and men wanted to tell me their stories, their suffering, their tribulations that convinced me, well, actually men are comfortable speaking with me. You know, so this is an untested assumption. Maybe I should try to overcome this separate spheres research. And that all of my prior research on the Middle East had really been through the eyes of women, women talking about men um, rather than actually me talking to men as men. So that was really, and I feel that because of that, maybe I wasn't really representing men's lives fairly or um, in a way that was true to how they wanted to represent their own lives. And I guess my act of contrition, if you will, is just that I had never in you know, more than a decade of prior research really tested this untested assumption myself that I, as a woman coming from the U S that somehow I couldn't speak to Arab men. And so And that was really what I set out to do, to actually go and be a scholar of the lives of ordinary Arab men. And, you know, fortunately, it it ended up being quite successful. Um, And actually, I have to say, the book, The New Arab Man, I mean, honestly, it is the first book in Middle East gender studies scholarship that really, takes on the issue of masculinity here, men's masculinity, as a research topic, which is really quite shocking. Um, since then, there have been a few other books that have followed, but it's sort of, you know, the thing about it that I guess we could say is pioneering is that it's the first gender studies book focusing actually on men as men.
0: Okay. So you're not necessarily suggesting by studying Middle Eastern masculinity um, that uh, patriarchy has gone away necessarily. Um, what, what exactly? What can you can you give some nuance to sort of what I the question that I just asked? Uh, what 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 what
1: what are you saying about um, masculinity in the Middle East? Yeah. Well, you know, the second book that I wrote based on my work in Egypt, was called Infertility and Patriarchy, the Cultural Politics of Gender and Family Life in Egypt. And I kind of followed along with the feminist argument, the Middle East studies feminist argument, that there is a lot of patriarchy operating in the Muslim Middle East. Um, And it's an important argument for feminists to make to sort of look at where does patriarchy come from? How is it enacted in daily lives? And my argument in that book was that infernal women sort of live patriarchy, the patriarchy in the family, the patriarchy in the marriage, the patriarchy in the community, and that women often buy into patriarchy because it's a sort of survival mechanism. So my, se- my second book was really about how patriarchy is lived in everyday life for especially poor women living in Egypt. But the the surprising finding from that book on patriarchy was um, what I called conjugal connectivity. Um, There's an argument by a very famous Middle East feminist scholar, Sawat Joseph, she's Lebanese-American, arguing that even within patriarchy, which is socialized in family life in the Middle East, that even within patriarchal families where the father's in charge and men dominate that nonetheless, there's a lot of connectivity, this very kind of loving enmeshment that people have in family life. So even though there's unfairness and inequality within family structures, where men do dominate women, that there's still a lot of loving connectivity within the Arab family. And that was her... Major argument. And so I took her idea of connectivity and I looked at it within marriage, arguing that yes, maybe there is patriarchy within marriage where men do have more power, but nonetheless, there's all of this conjugal connectivity, that there's a lot of love and enmeshment and care going on within that marital unit. And so, yes, patriarchy exists in the Middle East. Patriarchy exists in every society that I'm aware of around the world. We have not unseated patriarchy, including in the United States. I mean, we don't have equal pay for women in this country. We don't have women represented in the political system in the ways that they should be. There is a glass ceiling in employment for women. Women don't get, you know, the same kinds of rights in many different spheres of life. Patriarchy is on. Un- Unfortunately, a problem in all societies. But my argument in this book, *The New Arab Man*, is that increasingly new generation. Men, men of, you know, the contemporary era, they see the patriarchy, they see areas of unfairness, and in their own way, they're trying to be different men than they saw their fathers being. They're trying to enact different forms of marriage than maybe their parents did. But men are participating in new ways and trying to unseep or unmask and to change um, patriarchal conditions in their own societies. We clearly see that in the you know, revolutions that happened in 2011 in a lot of countries, that young men and young women went out in the streets to say, no to dictatorship. You know, no, we want different kinds of lives. We want dignity. We want fairness. Um, it's part and parcel of a lot of change going on in men's lives in the region.
0: Um, can you Can you sort of Give us some examples um, that you ran across uh, within the marriages that
1: you studied. Yeah, there's an assumption that Middle Eastern marriages are sort of arranged or semi-arranged, that people don't really have free choice, that they don't necessarily marry for love, uh, sometimes, uh, the, in fact, there are high rates of what we call consanguineous marriage, where people marry cousins. Um, that's a practice found across the world. Um, but it, it occurs in high rates in parts of the Middle East. And so that people don't really go into marriage expecting very much, that they don't expect a lot of love and companionship and so forth. And I think that that's really dramatic changing in the region, the expectations about what you want out of life, what you want out of marriage, what you want in your relationship, has really changed over time. And in fact, there's always been love within marriage um, in the region. I mean, it's actually been documented historically by modern Middle East historians, saying that the notion of companionate marriage has been alive and well for centuries in the, well, the Middle East. We just haven't gone looking for it. But people today can really articulate this very clearly, that they want something meaningful in their marriage. They want to have friendship in marriage. They want passion, that they want romance, that they want um, what you would call a companionate marriage. And it's not necessarily just ideas coming from the West. It's you know ideas from within um, about love and what love means. And so you see this really clearly when people marry assuming that within the first year of marriage that they'll end up getting pregnant and having a baby soon thereafter. Well, what what happens when that doesn't happen? You know, what if it takes two years? What if it takes three years? What if an infertility problem is diagnosed? There's an internal stereotype in the Arab world that, of course, the husband will abandon his marriage. Of course, he'll cast off the infertility. He'll assume it's her problem, first of all, and he'll divorce her. He'll immediately find another wife. That could not be more untrue in most parts of the Middle East now. Um, For one, there's high-tech medicine operating across the Middle East. So infertility services are among the most developed in any part of the world. Um, there are you know many infertility clinics, in vitro fertilization clinics, all across the Middle Eastern region, and so if people encounter a problem like that, they'll go to try to find a diagnosis. And guess what? If it's a male infertility problem, a man will recognize that oh, it might the infertility might come from him. So a lot of the assumptions and stereotypes about marriage and what happens if there's you know infertility in the marriage um, are simply not true, and so people will hang in there they'll you know they'll stay together they'll make sacrifices for each other there's been an incredible uptake of all kinds of assisted reproductive technologies across the region and my argument is really if you didn't have these notions of love and connection and companionship within marriage there would not be such a flourishing ivf industry in the middle east because it's a couples industry you have to have committed couples who want to use these technologies in order to have such a robust IVF industry in the Middle East. The IVF industry in the Middle East is one of the strongest IVF industries in the world. And it's because people want to stay together in their marriages. So what what is the male infertility rate in the Middle East? It's high. Um, we say in the world of infertility that about, generally speaking, about 40% of problems come from women's bodies, about 40% of problems come from men's bodies, and then about 20 to 30% are so-called combined problems. But that's not true in most of the Middle East. Uh, women may have infertility problems. Maybe 40 to 50% of cases will involve a female factor. But the rates of male infertility are much higher in most clinics. They can be like 60 to 70% of all cases of childlessness have a so called male factor. And I've heard in some clinics that the rates are even higher than that. And why is that? Most male infertility problems um, have a genetic component to them, it's a small deletion that occurs. A genetic mutation on the Y chromosome. So there's a sort of missing piece on the Y chromosome that leads to male infertility. And genetic problems are, they're just higher in the Middle East. And why is that? Probably because of the high rates of marriage between cousins. High rates of consanguineous marriage lead to particular kinds of genetic problems. So there are high rates of what you would call autosomal recessive genetic disorders in the Middle East, and male infertility because it is really probably mostly a genetic condition. You just find very high rates of it across the region, you know, from Morocco to Iran. Very high rates of male factor infertility. And because it's genetic, there's really not a whole lot that you can do. You can't take medicine to cure it. But there are these assisted reproductive technologies, in particular the one for men is called intracytoplasmic sperm injection, or ICSI, which is remarkable. It it, As long as you can find one viable spermatozoan from a very infertile man, you can use that spermatozoan, inject it into a woman's egg, and often remarkably produce a viable embryo so icsi has been a revolutionary technology in the middle east because of the high rates of male factor infertility and they call for the microinjection and you know people know about it and they do a lot of it and because of that they're really overcoming a lot of these genetic male infertility problems
0: so your book
1: um, was my first exposure to masculinity
0: studies. Can you speak about theorizing masculinity, specifically what do you mean by hegemonic masculinities in the Middle East, and why we need to focus on emergent masculinities instead? Um, also, I especially found the stereotypical list of masculine traits presented in Western sources really useful.
1: <laughs> well, so... Masculinity studies is a vibrant part of gender studies and the person most responsible for really, I think, moving things forward theoretically is Connell, Raymond Connell, um, whose theory of so-called hegemonic masculinity has really been probably the most important single conceptual analytic in masculinity studies. And Connell's notion of hegemonic masculinity is that within any given society, there is a hegemonic form, a dominant form of masculinity, which is the type which men are socialized into aspiring to. It's the sort of most ideal, the sort of culturally valid form of masculinity. And it often involves traits like, um, like well, um high social status in society, uh, virility, uh, strength, um, uh, having children, um, being um, a a man that other men look up to and respect, being the head of a business, you know, these sort of dominant masculine traits. And they might vary from society to society, but the hegemonic form of masculinity is the one, that is seen to be the dominant sort of type, if you will, the sort of ideal type of masculinity. And Connell said that hegemonic masculinity is something to which many men aspire, but which probably the majority of men can never attain in a given society. And therefore it's really important to look at the relationships between masculinity and men as they aspire to the hegemonic type and can't sort of achieve it. And so, Uh, Connell spoke about so-called hegemonic masculinity in relationship to subordinated, uh, marginalized masculinities that also exist in societies. And often these are, you know, often go along with race and class, especially in the West, so that... Poorer men, men of color, um, gay men, you know, cannot attain a sort of hegemonic dominant form. And Connell also spoke about so-called protest masculinity, that sometimes men in the sort of subordinated or marginalized realms um, protest the fact that hegemonic masculinity is oppressive. So the notion of hegemonic masculinity has been a very dominant um, conceptual theoretical model in masculinity studies for about 30 years now. And many masculinity scholars have have uh, sort of really uh, formed their work within this framework of hegemonic masculinity, including me. I had done that as well. I had written about you know the sort of hegemonic norm of Middle Eastern masculinity, and uh, you know that male infertility in the Middle East would make men quite marginalized and subordinate but then i thought gosh if we really keep talking about a hegemonic masculinity in the middle east we end up with what one might call the toxic trade list of middle eastern masculinity and that's been one of the main critiques of the Canelian model of hegemonic masculinity is that it ends up being you know both a sort of a list of the things that are valorized for men, but some of these things aren't good, right? Strength, domineering, competitive, brutal, oppressive forms of masculinity that put other men down. And if you sat and tried to think of this sort of hegemonic Arab man, it could really end up being a very toxic trait list. And so in one of my chapters on so called Middle Eastern masculinity, hegemonic middle eastern masculinity i sat down one afternoon in my office and came up with a kind of trait list of the hegemonic middle eastern man which would be you know a virile patriarch many children many wives uh hyperzealous religious dominating brutal oppressive violent and so forth and that's really the way that In the West, we see Middle Eastern men as being these brutal, oppressive, hyper-masculine, violent, religiously zealous men, because that's the way that they're portrayed in the Western media. That's really all we see. And so... I wrote it out one day, and, you know, it's in my book now about, you know, this sort of hegemonic model, if you will, of Middle Eastern masculinity, and it rings true to a lot of Western audiences because this is the way we, we see the Middle Eastern men portray dictators, you know, with you know, very small militaries around them, you know, fighting all the time. And so I really, in my own work, the ordinary Arab men, who I've come to know, hundreds of them over the years, really most of them bear nothing, you know, no similarity to these sorts of models of hegemonic masculinity in the Middle East. And I thought, gosh, we really need to just paint a different picture of the sort of ordinary, humane, loving, stressed, concerned guys that I met in my own research. Some of them were religious, some of them were pious, um, but, you know, very, um, you know, ordinary, compassionate men who have a lot of problems there in their own lives that are really never portrayed. And so I thought, if we keep using these tropes of hegemonic, marginalized, hegemonic, subordinated, and it has become such a dualism in masculinity, masculinity studies, we're never going to get beyond this dualism. And so I thought, time for a new conceptual model. And I couldn't really, the one that really stuck with me is that men's lives are changing. Men's lives change over the male life course. Men's lives change because of new technologies that are coming into the region. Men's lives are changing because men want their lives to change. They're questioning a lot of the sort of hegemonic norms. And men's lives change in response to social history. Men's lives change over the generations. That there's a lot of dynamic and fluid change going on in the Middle East that's not being captured. So I thought really the best term may be emergent masculinities in the plural, that there are many sort of new forms, new types of masculinity emerging. It's emergent, dynamic, fluid and that we, I need to come up with a new way of describing it. So I just decided to forward the term emergent masculinities. And it's actually one that I think has been um, useful. People have picked it up. They say it's useful in other parts of the world. Uh, some scholars have said we see emergent masculinities in sub-Saharan Africa, for example, in Latin America, for example, that men are not just stuck in these sort of, often very damaging stereotypes that we have of them and that we just need to be looking for the ways that men are trying to make change in their own lives. So my book is really about that. It's about all sorts of changes going on in the realm of personhood, marriage, family life, uh, religion, um, technology use, um, work. You know that men are... In, in the Arab world, have gone through a lot of changes. And we see this really in the new millennium. You know, my God, we see so much change going on. The use of social media, the, you know, men were out on the streets trying to protest, you know, their regimes. It hasn't necessarily gone well, but there's been a lot of social transformation going on in men's lives. So I decided to forward the term emergent masculinities as a way to capture all of that. Um, I don't know if I'm thinking about this uh,
0: sort of um, in a sophisticated way or not, but when I think of sort of a counter to the hegemonic masculinity that you're talking about, I, I see a man who embraces um, some sort or, or a series of vulnerabilities um, that that he, he has a hegemonic sort of... Um, Embracing a hegemonic masculinity, he would not. So what, what are these vulnerabilities uh, that are being embraced that you, you've you been sort of witnessing?
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, I would say that um, ordinary, non-hegemonic, emergent masculine men in the region, you know, they, they have a lot of stresses in their lives. Um, the region you know economically conditions may not be good and you know men are expected to be breadwinners um men are absolutely embracing the notion that their wives can get educated and work and in fact it's been shown in a lot of uh, recent scholarship that men actually many men want educated working wives to be partners with them because the cost of living is rising in many parts of the region it's very difficult to raise a family now in many parts of the region. People have dramatically limited their family sizes. This is, again, another one of the untold stories of the Arab world. is the dramatic decline in fertility rates across the region. As people say, I can't afford to have more than two kids. You know, the large family size is a thing of the past, and husbands and wives are working together to use contraception so that they can space and limit the number of children because it's expensive to live and to raise and educate children. And so um, these are some of the vulnerabilities. Men, they want to do well by their families. They, they often are expected to provision their aging parents to take care of aging parents in societies that have no social safety nets for older people. And so men are expected to be the ones to take care of not only their children, but their elderly parents as well. And that makes them vulnerable. Um, Often societies don't have social security. They don't have health care insurance. If there's a medical emergency, they have to pay for it. And so I've heard a lot about the financial and economic woes and stresses that men face and that they feel responsible, um, you know, to, to make sure that everyone's well protected. And they share a lot of that struggle with their wives. Women, you know, who are married to men, they often want to be in this together. In fact, it's often seen as a sort of shared struggle, a shared sacrifice for each other. Um, So, and poverty rates are high in countries like Egypt, you know, where more than half the population lives in poverty. Certain countries in the region are impoverished. Places like Morocco, Egypt, Yemen, other parts of the region are privileged by oil wealth. And, you know, so there are these sort of economic inequalities in the region. And uh, this sort of sharing of vulnerability, men, you know, increasingly, they want to do it within marriage. You know, they want to have a wife who's a companion, who's in this together with them. And I've really, really seen that. I can really attest to the strength of many marriages as people share life struggles together. And again, you know, that is a part of the sort of hegemonic stereotype that men and women, you know, are in this together in their marriages. But actually in family life, you really see this sort of formation of what what you would call the nuclear family, a husband, a wife, and their kids feeling that they are this family unit together, trying to work things out together. Um, And there's, again, another stereotype that men's worlds are separate separated for women's worlds that men are with other men that women are with other women well that may be true in 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 some situations but there really is um at least in the countries in which i've worked this notion of uh, the nuclear family a desire for a strong nuclear family a husband a wife and their children um comprising a social unit where they're helping each other and they're in this together. So they're just a lot of I don't know, the, the men that I've talked to in Egypt in I've I've spent a lot of time with Egyptian men, Lebanese men, Syrian, Palestinian men, and men in the Arab Gulf, and some Iraqi men, you know, I've worked with more than three hundred men, you know, taking their life stories. Um and they're often struggling to have a viable marriage. uh, a well-supported nuclear family. Those are aims that men have for their lives in this current generation.
0: So it becomes, you, you
1: You. said a lot
0: about this high-tech, assisted reproductive medicine and how it's become accessible to at least some in the Middle East. Um, what has been the response from the male population? Um, you've talked a little bit about that, but um, if you could elaborate. And also, what's
1: been the response from the clerical establishment? Yeah. So um, the Middle East, um, again, something we never hear about, but the Middle Eastern region has embraced what you would call high tech Western, you know, developed biomedicine sort of medicine as we know, in the West, it's absolutely in place throughout you know, most countries in the Middle East. And it often has to do with the sort of colonial relationships that were you know, formed with the British and French many, many years ago. But Western medicine is you know, there throughout the Middle East. And the clerical establishment, the Muslim religious establishment, both the Sunni religious establishment and the Shia Muslim religious establishment, It sort of worked hand-in-hand with doctors in the region to sort of make sure that medicine, this kind of biomedicine, is being practiced according to religiously acceptable lines. And so when things like organ transplantation have come to the region, contraceptions come to the region, uh, assisted reproductive technologies have come to the region... All, you know, many different forms of medicine have come to the region. Uh, it's been in negotiation with the clerical establishment. Just blood transfusions will allow those things. Okay, kidney transplantations will allow those things. And so you see this uh, as part and parcel of a kind of Islamic bioethics, if you will, um, that, you know, the medical establishment have worked hand in hand to make things acceptable together. And this is true of assisted reproductive technologies. Um, the first test tube baby in the world was born in 1978 in England. And with by 1986, the first IVF clinics were established in the Middle East, in the countries of Egypt, Jordan, and Saudi Arabia. And why? Because the religious leaders in Egypt in 1980, uh, Issued a religious decree saying that in fact in vitro fertilization would be acceptable for Muslim couples to use as a solution to their childlessness. Mm-hmm. Um, Assistive reproductive technologies have been approved by both the Sunni and Shia clerical establishments in the Muslim Middle East, and so Muslim couples are using assistive reproductive technologies in great numbers, so are Christian and Eastern couple. Old Jews, really, they're available and widely embraced by all of the different sort of religious groups across the region, Muslim, Christian. It's been a very, um, I would say, a very enthusiastic embrace of these reproductive technologies across the region.
0: Can you talk a little bit about your methodology, Um, how many men were interviewed, Um, what countries were they from, over how many years, did you keep revisiting them, Um, how were their wives involved, in other words, um, if they said something to you about their marriages, uh, did you corroborate that with the wives, would that even be uh, something that you would consider, is that an important thing to do, Um, and did anyone refuse? when you ask
1: them. Yeah, I've been working um, on this topic for a very long time, you know, really over three decades. Um, but this study of men um, that I really, you know, undertook in Lebanon was um, a particular, you know, study with men. I interviewed 220 men. 120 of them were infertile men. 100 of them were fertile men who were in Lebanese IVF clinics with their infertile wives. So these were men who were themselves fertile, but their wives were infertile, and they were supporting their infertile wives um, in terms of getting access to treatment so in lebanon i I did a study with 220 men they were mostly lebanese um, including lebanese men who were living in other parts of the world but were coming back to lebanon usually during the summer to try to access in vitro fertilization but i also in lebanon interviewed syrian men men who were crossing the border from syria into lebanon to access technologies in beirut and i also interviewed palestinian men but then I, I've interviewed men in in a number of different settings, um, and so overall, I have spoken with about 330 men, um, collecting what I call reproductive life histories, talking to men often over. Hours about their sort of reproductive lives, their marriages, their family lives, men from a, a variety of different Middle Eastern backgrounds, different countries. Um, so I have a really large, um, if you would call, data set of interviews with Middle Eastern men. In some of the cases, um, I did interviews with couples, so that women and men were talking with me together. So, but um, so I have talked to many women alone over the years. I've talked to many men alone over the years, and I've talked to many couples together over the years. I can say that the only time that i that uh, People have refused to speak with me, it was really in the study of men. There were some men, an unknown number really, who just did not want to talk to me for a variety of reasons. And actually, in my book, The New Arab Man, I talk about the sort of refusal or lack of response of some men when they were asked, you know. For example, by a physician, do you want to talk to her about your male infertility problem? Some percentage of men didn't want to; they didn't feel comfortable talking. But having said that, it was amazing to me um, that so many men did want to speak with me. Um, so over the course of, I, I spent about eight months in Lebanon in the year two thousand three, um, and I was able to speak to, to, to more than two hundred men in great detail about their their lives. Um, so uh, you know, I've i collected. Thousands of pages of interview transcripts um, in my discussions with Middle Eastern men over the years. And, you know, it's represented in this book, The New Era of Man.
0: Right. Um, what about socioeconomic background? Um, uh, is that pretty diverse too
1: within your data set? Yeah. Um, in, the, in the early days when assisted reproductive technologies, you know, especially in vitro fertilization, arrived in the Middle East um, in the late 1980s, early 1990s, the only people who could access these technologies were really what you might call the elite. They were at least middle class, and they were often upper or upper middle class couples who could afford these technologies, which are expensive. But over the years, the peop- the number of people and sort of you know, class position of people, um um, embracing these technologies has really diversified and expanded poor people also want to be able to use these reproductive technologies and so different governments in the Middle East have actually tried to make assisted reproductive technologies available to their populations um, for example in the country of Iran um, there are government clinics um, the same in the country of Egypt to allow poor people to access in vitro fertilization the country of Turkey has made in vitro fertilization accessible to everybody through health insurance. So the state actually subsidizes IVF for all Turks. So people, the poorest people from rural areas, are coming to IVF clinics in the country of Turkey. And so there is some attempt on the part of governments to help infertile people access IVF and related technologies. And so in my own work, I've seen this happen over the. Years that um, you know, it's not just elites or affluent people who are using these technologies. It's people from a variety of social classes and educational backgrounds who are accessing these technologies. You know, still often at great, um, you know, at great with great hardship. I mean, the technologies are much less expensive in the Middle East than they are, say, in America. Nonetheless, you know, people still have to pay know two thousand dollars to do a cycle of ivf and that's a lot of money for a lot of people in the region the average cost of one cycle of ivf in the united states is about twelve thousand us dollars i would say the average cost in the middle east is about two to three thousand u.s dollars so much less expensive nonetheless a lot of money a whole new reason for tourism (laughs) (laughs) right That is why people are traveling across borders around the world trying to get access to safe, effective, legal, and inexpensive forms of reproductive technologies in other countries. Which is the topic, actually, this is the topic of my, I have a book coming out this year called Cosmopolitan Conception. These IVF sojourns in global Dubai, and I followed the paths of about 125 couples from around the world, traveling to the United Arab Emirates, trying to get access to safe, effective, legal, affordable IVF in, in the UAE from countries often where they didn't, they had no access to the technologies. Wow. Wow. Um, so, uh, this is my last
0: question. Um, what is the role of Islam in facilitating this emergent masculinity that you're talking about?
1: Yeah, I mean, most of the men that I've talked to over the years were Muslim. Um, and I would say Muslims of many different stripes. Um, some very pious, some very secular, and most somewhere in between. Practicing Muslims who... Um, you know, cared about their religion and cared about, you know, being ethical, um, you know, Muslims. Um, having said that, you know, I, I, I don't see Islam as a sort of homogeneous entity. I think that Islam itself isn't a monolithic religion. There are different, you know, strands of Islam, different variants of Islam, different understandings of Islam, and, and people practice their religion in different ways. Um, and that I would say there's a great diversity in Islam, but I've certainly seen in my own work. And Islam, I think from the standpoint I'm a medical anthropologist and what i really followed is how Islam has sort of embraced medicine. Islam actually is what you would call techno-scientifically agentive. Islam argues that if there is a new medical solution for suffering, people should embrace that solution, that people should be agents of their own lives, that people yeah. should uh, search for cures for things until the ends of the earth. Um, there's a lot of Islamic support for people using technologies that helped alleviate suffering. And so that's really what I've studied. I've studied the way that Islam has helped people with medical problems to embrace new technologies that can help to alleviate their medical problems. Um, and, and men, these emergent men in the region are saying, look at." <sighs> As a man, I should do that as well. If there's something to help me overcome a medical condition or help my wife to overcome a medical problem, then we need to embrace those medical solutions. And interestingly, there are many um, Muslim couples, especially from the Arab Gulf, who are being supported by their governments and by the religion to come to the United States to try to overcome dire health conditions within their families, um, particularly particularly children's health problems, men who will give up their jobs for often many months to accompany their sick children over to the United States to get access to technologies to try to help their very sick children. Um, I've actually seen this in the United States. So Islam plays a, what you would call a sort of dynamic role in the lives of people, including men in the region. Um, these emergent technologies, Islam is embracing. I guess emergent technologies that are helping people to overcome their problems and their suffering, especially their medical suffering. And that's really what I study as a medical anthropologist: how Islam has sort of gone hand in hand with um, medicine in the region to to help men and women and their families um, to have better futures.
0: Uh, Marcia, is there something you'd like to talk about that we've left out? Um,
1: I think you know my main message in this book, The New Arab Man, is that we need to have a more i would say human humanizing portrayal of men of Arab men, of Muslim men. I mean unfortunately, I don't want to blame this all on the media or the Western media, but we're only fed certain stories. Up About the Middle Eastern region right now, the stories are overwhelmingly violent stories. They're quite frightening, even terrifying stories about the Middle Eastern region. Um, Those are particular stories about the region that sort of draw the headlines. And there are many, many, many other stories that need to be told about the region, um, including by the Western media including by scholars, including by anthropologists, including by feminist scholars. Um, there are many other stories, sort of ordinary stories of ordinary people that need to be told. And once told, they create different understanding of the region than the ones that we sort of know about here in the West. And I think that's really what my book attempts to do, is to tell these stories of ordinary people's lives that are sort of eye-opening um, or certainly for my students, I've you know, used my work in my classes at Yale, and students say, wow, I never knew that. I never knew that people could be like that. And I guess that's really what I'm trying to, in a way, I'm, in a way I'm writing for Western audiences as well as Middle Eastern audiences, but to sort of be pathbreaking, to be eye-opening, to say that there are other stories about men in the region that we need to hear.
0: Marcia and thank you so much for talking to us. Um, you do amazing work, and I'm so happy that uh, we had this conversation.
1: Oh, thank, thank you. Thank you so much. I've really enjoyed talking to you, and I thank you for your interest in my work. Thank you. <laughs>